But one of the reasons I love to teach the Old Testament, that's where we are, we're continuing in our series in the book of Samuel, is we are reminded over and over and over again of the holiness of God. And really, when we come to the New Testament, it's assumed by that time that there is one God, creator, sovereign over all, and that he is holy. He's holy. It's assumed in the gospel that we believe. The reason we need a savior, the reason why our sin is so despicable in the sight of God is because God himself is holy. And not only is God holy, but we are therefore accountable to a holy God. In fact, one thing we see throughout the Old Testament is that it's a dangerous thing to not recognize the holiness of God. But of course, along with his holiness, and even in the midst of the stories that bring out his holiness most clearly, we see that he's a God of mercy as well, constantly calling us to himself. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 19, and we're going to go to the end of chapter 5. And um, a little bit has happened between last week's sermon, for those who were here last week, to what we're doing now. Uh, the judgment that was proclaimed upon Eli and his house has happened. Israel went to war with the Philistines. They lost. They lost brutally. In fact, not only did they lose, they get this sort of bad idea, hair-brained idea, that will bring the Ark of the Covenant, so not Noah's Ark, but this is the box that held the Ten Commandments, some of the manna, and Aaron's uh, rod. They take that box into battle, thinking they can sort of use God like a weapon like a tool to help them win the war against the Philistines. Well, the ark is taken by the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And the high priest Eli, when he hears the news, falls to his own death. That's where we're picking up. So these are, this is a dark time for Israel in their history. And yet, there is mercy. 419 to the end of chapter 5. We read this now. His, meaning Eli's, daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, 
And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and study and application of his word this morning. So three points to see where we're going in this wonderful Mother's Day passage, right? (laughs) First of all, God's holiness. There are applications. You'll see. We'll get there. God's holiness towards his people in 419 to 22. God's holiness towards other gods, quote unquote. And then finally, God's holiness towards unbelievers. But first, towards his own people, what's happening there in Israel, of course, is they have hit a dark time, a sinful time in Israel's history, and God gave them warning after warning that judgment was coming upon them. And lo and behold, it comes, they lose in this battle. And we learn this little story about the wife of Phineas. Now, we're not given her name. However, we were told that Phineas, the priest, was sleeping around with the women who work at the temple, you may remember. So now we learn that not only is he sleeping around, but he's married and has a pregnant wife at home. So it brings sin all the more. And she hear, when she hears the news of the defeat, she dies. Oh, she's brought into labor um, and, short, and dies shortly after. But as she gives birth, the midwives actually tried to give her some hope. Don't be afraid. You're giving birth to a son. But she's so depressed and suffering the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the stress, and she dies shortly afterwards. But she does have enough time to give him the name Ichabod, which means, sadly, the glory departs from Israel. That's a name that we don't typically name our kids anymore, you may notice, right? The only Ichabod I can think of is Ichabod Crane, right, from the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which there's an intentional reason why the writer uses the name Ichabod for their main character. He has a sort of tragic life and story. It's time of, of, of seeming despair. She dies. Her family's priesthood ends. They did not recognize God as holy, and there are consequences for it. As I said, this may be a strange story for Mother's Day, but if you look more carefully, the midwives are, are, are the smartest ones here. They're trying to give her hope. You may remember the judgment was that this would be the end of Eli and the end of his house. But lo and behold, the mercy of God, a new child, is brought into the family. 
a new life. Eli's generation won't end with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In fact, honestly, what makes this story so meaningful, what makes it so tragic, really, is the fact that is the assumption that a mother loves her kids more than almost anything in the world, right? More than anything in the world, they love their kids. So what would it take for a mother to be so really apathetic and insensitive towards the birth of her own son? Behind this is the idea that that's probably the greatest love on this planet is a mother's love for her own children. But ultimately, we learn that the husband, the father, they were not good priests. And God is a holy God, and he brings judgment, and that's a good thing. He could not allow the situation to continue on and on forever. Where she misunderstood stands as well as that the ark itself is not God. The glory hasn't departed from Israel. A box that represents the presence of God has departed from Israel, but God is very much still at work. Raising up a new generation, and also in the young boy Samuel ministering in the temple. Their problem was that they looked at the ark as if it were God, when God, of course, is an infinite spirit. Before we move on, though, by way of application here, God is holy towards his people. God is holy towards his people, ancient Israel, and God is holy towards his people, Christians today, and he is no less holy now than he was back then. He never changes, and there is a right reverence we should have in relation to God. And if we don't treat God as holy, there are consequences. When we come to his word, there should be a certain respect and a recognition of its authority. When we worship God, it's not about the entertainment. It's not about the style of music you prefer. It's about bringing praise to the living God of all the nations. When it comes to the mission that we have been called to, this is serious business. We are meant to share this good news to the ends of the earth. And there are consequences to not recognize God as holy. But all of this, I think, we can say points us to Jesus Christ. (laughs) Because no one here is holy. Right? I mean, some of you moms, you're super moms. Trust me. I'm married to a super mom. I'm the son of a super mom. I get it, right? But even super moms know that they are not sinless, that they're not sinless, right? That they make mistakes. In fact, oftentimes moms live with a certain amount of guilt on their failures because they recognize that nobody can do it perfectly. Eli is not perfect. He's sinful. Hophni and Phineas are far from perfect. Phineas's wife is not perfect. Even Samuel, we'll see later on in the book, is not perfect. There is only one who is truly holy only one who can bring us before a truly holy God, and that's Jesus Christ. And friends, by application, I would just say to never give up hope. (laughs) Even in God's judgment, he's raising up a new generation with Eli's grandson, Ichabod. He's never limited. He's not limited by any generation. And who knows what revival might break out in a generation. And friends, he's not limited by a specific land. Because the ark is gone means nothing ultimately to the presence of God with his people and throughout the world. The next section, we kind of actually move away from Israel to the Philistine territory. These are the enemies of Israel, the sea peoples of the ancient world. There's a little bit of a history. In fact, the term Palestine, Palestinian, that kind of comes from Philistines, the people who occupied much of the land at this point in time. Uh, But they take the ark and bring it into their own land. 
So Ebenezer is in Israel's territory. Ashdod is in Philistine territory. They take it. And the way it was sort of looked at is if you conquered another nation in the ancient world, you conquered their god. I mean, that's just clear evidence that your god must be greater than their god. Because if their god was greater, you wouldn't be able to beat them. So they feel like, hey, our god, Dagon, is far greater than Israel's god. So we're going to take their idol the way we're treating it as, an, as if it were an idol, even though the ark is not that, and bring it into our temple. So Dagon, of course, here is referring to a big, large statue, a big, large idol. And they put it into the city uh, and put it into the temple there in Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the five major cities there in uh, Philistia. And what happens? The next day, they wake up and they find Dagon, the statue, bowed down, crashed to the ground with his face before the ark of God. And just notice the irony here, guys. They have to pick him back up. Now, I don't know much about the gods of the nations, but if you have to pick him up, (laughs) he's not a very powerful god, right? I mean, that's the idea. The, the, The irony is they have to literally lift him back up. They come the next morning, and what happens? He's fallen again, and this time his head is broken off, and his hands hands was a sign of strength. Later on they say, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon us. Both his hands are broken off. Only his trunk, his middle section is left. The priests don't get it even still because they say, well, I guess the land where he fell and broke his hands off is considered holy. So for now on, we have to be cautious with it. There's one God and only one God over all the nations. There's no comparison course, back there in the ancient world, most people would be polytheists. They would have believed there are many gods. Uh, They had no problem believing that there really is a god in Israel. But they also believe he's just one god, and there's also the the Dagon, and there's Baal, and there's all these other different gods. It's Israel alone, really, that continues to claim, no, there is only one god, and he is creator of everything. The ark was not an idol. It was not a picture of God. If anything, it's more like a throne. It was like a seat where God, who is infinite spirit, sat upon, representing the presence of God. It was never meant to be treated like a tool or a weapon of war. The lesson here to the Philistines is obvious. The God of Israel is the true and real God. He's not a statue made of stone or wood or metal. One commentator writes, R.P. Gordon, the contest is not between Israel and Philistia, but between Israel's God and the gods of the Philistines. Friends, God is holy towards other gods. Now, I don't know if these other gods, some have taken this to understand that there is a sort of spiritual power behind these other gods, some demonic force that may or may not be the case, but ultimately, there's only one true creator. This is true when we think about Christianity in regards to other world religions, friends. Yes, there's something to learn from every religion in the world. Yes, there is a, something in us crying out as human beings to God. But ultimately, they can't all be true. <laughs> you, you, you can't have all of these contradicting views all true at the same time, as much as we may want that in our culture. And God calls us to be careful not to mix faith with the one true and living God. Friends, and Jesus put it very simply, uh, you cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve two masters. 
Here's what happens if you try. You'll be drawn to one, and then you'll begin to despise the other. You'll love one and hate the other. And that's always what happens when you try to worship two gods. And by the way, so for easy for us to say, you know, we don't really uh, bow down and worship idols anymore, Pastor Rick, so this really doesn't apply. Oh, we have our gods in our culture. We most certainly have our gods. In fact, friends, if you don't worship the God of the universe, you will worship something in his place. It, just by our nature as human beings, we will, what is the place of preeminence, the highest place in your life? If not God, what? Here's what I would say. Here's my short list of, of things that we so easily put in this very place of God. One is our job. I think it's a particular danger for men, but men and women, uh, that you define your whole being and existence by what you do. I am a doctor. Uh, I am a lawyer. Or I am a carpenter or mechanic or whatever. It's the whole of your personhood. It's why you exist. That's why you believe you're on this planet, to accomplish what your job does. Your job has become your idol. More acceptable is our family, Right? There are many people who say, I don't believe in God, but the most important thing, the only thing that really matters to me is family. And there's a danger in making even our families into an idol. I think of uh, Don Carleone, right? Nothing was higher than his family, even if that meant the death of others. Your family becomes more important than anything. Some substance, whether that's alcohol or drugs, Sex is definitely high up there on the list. If, I have nothing, if there's no God, then that becomes my God. Pornography or sleeping around becomes the most important thing in my life. It's why I live. And of course, money, possessions, accumulations. You cannot serve two masters. In time, you'll be drawn to the one and hate the other. Billy Graham used to use a pretty simple illustration to describe this, uh, he said, you got two, two, sort of two gods or battle against the flesh and against uh, our, our spiritual sort of relationship with God. And he says, which one will win? Well, it's kind of like two dogs, he said. Which of the two dogs will beat the other? The one you feed more, right? The one you devote yourself to more, the one you spend more time caring for will in the end beat out the other. Now, I'll just also just give you guys a, a helpful, hopefully helpful advice if those who kind of sit on the fence. And if you're that person, you're kind of seeking, not sure what you believe. Um, uh, I would say good. Continue to seek good answers. Uh, no, one's, no one should be asking you to believe something that you haven't really explored yet and fully grasped. But be careful not to just sit on the fence forever. You know, there are people who do that, who say, I, I'm, I'm an agnostic, which ultimately means I'm going to live as if there's no God. So I'm going to say I don't know, but I'm not going to live as if there is a God. I'm going to live as if there isn't a God, right? So continue to seek, but there should be that time in which you say, all right, I'm either all in or I'm not. (laughs) I'm either going to follow Jesus, though none go with me, still I will follow, or I'm not. God is holy towards other gods. And then we see in 5, 6 to 12, God's holiness towards unbelievers. His holiness towards unbelievers. What happens to the ark as it's passed around Philistine hands? So first of all, it's in the city of Ashdod. They have this whole event with a statue of Dagon Falls. That doesn't warn them enough. So they continue to try to deal with the presence of the ark with them, and tumors begin to break out 
on the people. Later on, we rats are described as being there as well. Most likely, um, commentators believe this is the bubonic plague. So passed on by, um, by rats and caused different types of tumors and specific, the specifics of how the tumors are described um, uh, fits exactly with what the bubonic plague would bring about. They talk about being afflicted here. Well, who's doing the afflicting? There's a panic. They're worried that they're going to be killed. So what do they do? They send it back to Israel, right? No, not yet. They say, we'll send it to our neighboring town, Gath. <laughs> so Gath takes it, and the same thing begins to happen there. The hand of the Lord is against them, and tumors begin to break out on people. So they say, return it to Israel, right? No, once again, they say, send it to a third town in Philistia, which is Ekron. And the people of Ekron are smarter because before the ark even gets there, they say, do not bring that box into our city. You'll come to kill us and destroy us. They're smart enough to say, send it back to Israel. And then I think there's some hope there in verse 12. It says that the cry of the city went up to heaven. Not to Dagon, but to heaven. Is there a true and one living God over all? And we're asking him for mercy. There may be some hope of true repentance here. A few things to note about this before we move to application. Um, Notice the difference here. So when the ark was carried by Israel, they tried to use it like a weapon. And it failed. Because God is not to be carried around by us as if he's in our pocket, under our control. Here, it's not being used as a weapon or a tool It's God himself at work. This is his work and word to the Philistines, really. And notice, too, the the increasing judgment. It it starts off with a very clear warning. The statue of Dagon fallen and then broken. And then God starts with judgment upon one city. That doesn't work. So another city and almost to, to a third. It's as if God has given them warnings. He's not just rushing to destroy them all. Recognize me to be holy. And God, through his own power, no help from Israel, brings victory over the Philistines. What Israel could not do, God does. To the point they cry out for mercy to God and decide to return the ark. By the way, if you're thinking this is again God judging one nation over the other, when they return it to Israel, you can read this in the next chapter, Mitch is uh, preaching next week, but he's going to move on to chapter 8. What happens is Israel, when they get the ark back, they don't treat it as holy. They try to look in it and all that, and God brings judgment upon them. If you're interested, by the way, the ark is later put into the temple. It's held there for centuries in Jerusalem uh, after Solomon builds this massive temple until the, uh, it stays in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place of the temple where the, a high priest can only enter once a year until Babylon eventually conquers them in 586, destroys the temple, and takes the ark. If you're wondering where the ark is today, it's not in a museum. Sorry, Indiana Jones. I don't think that's right. I'm going to guess it was melted down for its gold and destroyed by the Babylonians and is nowhere left on this planet. God is holy towards all. One thing to note here is God is not limited to one land. God is not limited to the borders of Israel. That was part of Israel's mistake. He's at work in all the world, ultimately calling people to repentance and faith. 
Many of you guys have heard me talk about the 1040 window. It's a common terminology when you think of missions. That's part of the world in the, uh, behind me you see is the 1040 window. That's where the majority of people on this planet are. And there are whole lands yet to hear the name Jesus Christ and the mercy of God to save sinners and restore them to himself. And he puts it on us to proclaim this message and make sure it gets there. Friends, as as we seek to reach people for Jesus, as we seek to see people reconciled to God and to his holiness, trust that ultimately the conviction, the repentance, the faith does not come from us. It comes from God. God's not in a box that we can control him. Pray. Pray for non-believing family and friends. Pray that God does his internal work. We had a couple of church members who were literally opened up this week for surgery, right? You can't, you can't go into a person's body and, and change their spirit. <laughs> you can't go into a person's body and see their soul. doesn't work that way, right? There's a part of us, our very personhood, that can only be reached by the mercy and the grace of God. So what do we do? We pray, wait for the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction, drawing people to himself, wait upon God, love and share the good news. Also remind us that God may make someone uncomfortable to bring him to himself. <laughs> that God has done this in my life, I'm sure. Many of you guys would say similarly, he does the same in yours. Like he did with the Philistines. The way he brings them to a point in which they finally cry out to heaven is to increasingly make them more and more in- uncomfortable in their lives until finally they're asking the Lord for mercy. Oftentimes God uses the difficulties and the hardships, the suffering in our life to call people eventually towards himself. And I would just encourage you never to lose hope. Israel lost hope. They didn't need to. God will not be in the end defeated. He's still at work even in the foreign land, ultimately bringing the ark back to his people by himself. All they ultimately had to do was wait, just to wait upon the Lord. God is holy, and he's merciful. As I mentioned in the beginning, if there's one thing the Old Testament reminds us of over and over again, it is the holiness of God. I wonder, friends, if today, could it be that we have so emphasized the familiarity and the casualness of a relationship with God that we are in some danger I'm not talking about turning back to ceremonies and ritual. That's not what I mean. But a deep and profound respect for our creator. When we come to the New Testament, we don't see God's holiness thrown aside. Instead, Jesus. Born of a virgin. Jesus had a mother, just like us but God's holiness made flesh and dwelling among us. Sinless, perfect, merciful, and loving. And this Savior lays down his life to die the death of a sinner so that those who are sinful like me and you might be seen as holy in the sight of God.
It's a foundation of the gospel that God is holy, holy, holy. Did you know that in the Hebrew language, there is no word for very. You don't, there's no real word for very. If, if you want to say something is holy, you say it's holy. If you want to say something is very holy, you say it's holy, holy. <laughs> if you want to say something is very, very holy, you say he is holy, holy, holy. Is, which is exactly what the Bible says about God. It's the only characteristic of God that is repeated three times consecutively. God is holy, but he loves us and he's merciful and he wants us by his side. I'm reminded of the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. We'll end with this. My favorite verse, I think it's the second or third verse, says this, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, and there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that when we pray to you, we pray to the creator of the universe, the one and only God, the one who is infinite in all of his attributes, in love and mercy, as well as in purity and power, and yet cares for us. A little speck in this infinite ocean of the universe looks at each of us as his son, as his daughter, enough that you would lay down your life to redeem us, that you who are infinitely holy would take us impure and unholy people and make us your own forever. That's the gospel. That's the message we proclaim. That's the message we hold on to. By repentance and faith, we're drawn into this relationship with you. So all the glory and the praise is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.